0: long short
1: welcome to the politics guys a place for bipartisan rational and civil debate on American politics and policy I'm Trey Orndorf a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University and today I'm interviewing Adam Probolsky of Probolsky Research, founded in 1992 and is a woman and Latina-owned market and opinion research firm. They conduct all kind of cool research. But Adam, thanks so much for being willing to be a, a guest on The Politics Guys. Thanks a million for having me. No, I, I have to be honest, I am really excited about getting to talk to you. I mean, you're, you're a quant guy, you do elections. Uh, This is what I send my students out in the world to do, so I'm really excited to kind of get to chat with you about some data on that front. And and, and so, listeners, we're going to be talking about how do we kind of perform these. We're going to talk with Adam about that. We're going to talk more specifically how it kind of, how do we use that to talk about partisan ID, some other fun stuff. We're going to be doing all that in just a minute. We're going to pause for just a brief moment, and then we're going to start our conversation uh, with Adam. Okay, so, Adam, I just wanted to start by just asking some basic questions for our listeners who may not be in the know. Would you just talk to us for a minute about ProBolsky Research?
0: Sure. Uh, we are a national market and opinion research firm. Uh, most of our clients are actually government agencies, so cities, counties, uh, other local and regional agencies, state agencies. Uh, we do uh, a decent amount of work for evil corporations uh, and, uh, and some nonprofits. Uh, and then we do some politics. We were born out of politics uh, 30 years ago and, and so have a very strong foundation in it. But uh, business-wise, we've gravitated away from, you know, candidate work proper. Uh, and so it's a, it's a part of our business, just not the biggest part. So we have this really wide perspective of, of uh, you know, from a brand perspective, from a political perspective, from a public policy perspective.
1: Yeah, there's, I'm always telling my students there's so much overlap there, right? You can go into jobs. If you don't mind my asking, what ended up pushing you guys a little bit further away from the side of elections?
0: So uh, a few things. Uh, I mean, more recently, uh, I'm, you know, I started out as a partisan. I grew up as a conservative Republican activist. I mean, in the in, in the you know in the nineties definition of that um which is very very different than what that means today and oh and heavens I, yes i um, understand yes, uh and I gravitated you know uh eventually toward a um less angry place i guess <laughs> and and <laughs> so uh <laughs> we um so we just weren't you know partisans as, as individually and as a company anymore. and and it wasn't really a priority. and And so it, when it comes to partisan work, you really have to be in one or the other camp uh, in order to you know thrive yeah. from a business perspective. It doesn't matter, you know whether you're a pollster or a campaign consultant or a you know even a digital you know consultant, whatever it is, you really have to kind of live in one of those spaces. Um, and and also, I, I, I have a A lot of experience on the policy side i have been a city planning commissioner, a finance commissioner, a waste management commissioner. Like in all those, I I did all the kind of fun stuff um, some people get to do later in life. I did a lot earlier in life. I also sat on a lot of corporate board or nonprofit boards. And so I got to see the policy side of things and how, you know, uh, people get helped uh, and, and how policy is made. And that really got me excited to move more towards the the that policy world.
1: Yeah, no, uh I can understand that shift. I, I ask in part because one of the things that I'm I'm constantly telling students is is you've got to pick if you wanna do the election side of life, you gotta pick a lane. And and you don't get a lot of choices to to jump ship once you've been in you know, once you've been on one side for a while, <laughs> you know. Uh, right. it, the other side is not going to trust you quite in the same way it, it, as a company even. Um, so I, I understand that kind of uh, uh, take. Now, so I, on this show, we're going we're to be – we're going to get – we're going to quant out today some <laughs> – and we're going to let listeners kind of come along for the ride. You know, so as listeners might know, uh, you know, I'm a professor. I teach data analysis, research methods, and I'm always trying to help students think through problems in systematic ways. And as I'm sure you know, that's not easy. You know, what's the problem I'm interested in? What can I measure to get at that problem? What are the tools at my disposal to analyze that? Uh, 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 those measures? So, when, when, you're, when, when you have your client, when you have, you were saying you're doing a lot of uh, uh, work for uh, governments at this point, when you have a client that comes, how, how does your team, how do you tackle a question? Like, what, what's the process that goes through on that front? Our, our
0: goal is to do two things. One is be accurate uh, in, our, in our assessment and, and in our results. And one of the most uh, specific ways you do that is to be inclusive. In, in your universe of who you're trying to get to participate. So in the case of, let's say, you know, a, a county or a state agency, or I mean, quite frankly, the same thing goes for uh, a corporate client or, or, or a political client, what is your universe? Right? I'm trying to understand what people in Florida think, okay, or what voters in Florida think. Okay, uh, what's great about the voter world is we've got this, you know, awesome thing called the voter file. Uh, that in most states is very comprehensive. Has you know your age, your gender, your party, uh, if, the, if there is party identification in that state. Um, it it has when you voted, how often you vote. I mean, it doesn't say how you voted, um, but our analytics folks can probably figure that out. Uh, and so you you really uh, not I should be clear not really but but based on data, not, 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 not based on, you know, hacking a, a computer system. Um, but so, so we know who all the voters are, the foundational spot is, uh, and then we go about constructing what we expect will be, in the case of a voter scenario, a turnout model. Uh, and I can talk more about that. I'll, I'll go back to, you know, let's say we're not doing something for an election proper. It's just for you know, customer satisfaction of a government agency or a corporate brand trying to, you know, improve their image um, uh, in in the eyes of of the public. Uh, There, you don't have the luxury of using the voter file, which is exclusively used for elections. So we have what we call the consumer file. um, And, you know, as it's either really exciting or uh, you know, really scary, depending on who you are. That <laughs> in that consumer file, you know, I know your. Um, I, I I I don't know how much money you have in your bank account, but I know it's more than a hundred thousand um, dollars. And I know that you subscribe to you know uh, um, you know some hunting magazine, and and I know that you've got a a Ford Bronco, right? I mean, it, everything is in there, and. Um, and so we can use that to, to again, approximate the public. And it, you don't have to be a citizen to be in the consumer file. Uh, and this is Experian or any other big you know, uh, data collector. Um, you, you know, if you paid any tax, if you have a cell phone, if you, you know, subscription to any magazine, you're going to be in this file. So almost everyone in this country is in the consumer file and accessible. And even if you're not, there's other ways we can go ahead and, and get, get a hold of you to do a survey
1: oh my goodness, you hit so many things there that I want to come back to, but I, I'm, I'm going to start maybe kind of in reverse order. You were, you were talking there about the consumer file, all these facts that we have about us. You know, it, it's, it's eerie sometimes as a researcher, the amount of information that we have on individuals, right? So, you know, Target and Amazon, uh, for example, Target was able to predict uh, when women were pregnant, on the basis of right. the data that they had on them, because they wanted to send out like coupons and stuff, it, it was a big kind of uh, uh, kerfuffle. And this leads this whole concept. Listeners ask about it a lot. Students ask about it a lot. You know, the big data sets. And one of the things I wanted to ask, and you were already getting into that, is obviously it's useful to you given what you're saying. But how do you guys use those kinds of big data sets to kind of create instruments to make predictions about how people are going to behave? For a company, for example, what kinds of variables are you going to generally be interested in, or is this something that you is kind of proprietary? In other words, you figured out that X, Y, and Z, you know, the Bronco along with the hunting magazine ends up leading right. to this kind of weird outcome. How does that kind of work? I mean, I think Big Data is a little bit mysterious for some. So, talk us through kind of how you guys use that.
0: Sure. Well, first I'll say this: there is no
1: secret sauce.
0: Uh, and and there's certainly things that we do that I'm not going to you know do a webinar for you on, uh, but <laughs> it, it's not uh, it, it's not you know you know cr- m- magician work. It, it's it's data, it's math, uh, it, it's 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 some art. Uh, there's nothing you know there's nothing magical about it. So uh, so yeah, for sure we we look at. Uh, you know, probably things you'd probably think we would look at. We look at, you know, age and gender, uh, to some degree party, depending on what our project is. is. Um, we certainly look at, at voting history, uh, you know, to kind of maybe gauge engagement to some degree. Uh, there's all kinds of other things that are in there that you might not necessarily think that, might you're relevant. So for instance, the way someone registered to vote, depending on the state, there's, there's, there's many different possibilities. So in California, you are automatically registered to vote if you are a citizen and you go to the DMV and get yourself a driver's license. So and I think you can maybe stop it if you want, but it's basically like a called motor voter law and it's going you're basically going to be registered. So I may rate you differently as someone who registered at the DMV automatically than someone who proactively went and registered uh, with a registration card or online because you did it proactively so those are kind of nuances of things that we might look at that will go into your you know our expectation for you to turn out or our expectation for you to engage in some process or something like that and and they, there's all kinds of other data points like where you were born so if you were born, You know, in Oklahoma and you live in Oklahoma, I may look at you differently than if you were born in Texas and live in Oklahoma or if you were born in Guatemala and you live in Oklahoma. And so a lot of that data is available to us and we can look at you differently as a first generation American or a second generation American. Um, We can look at you based upon language. Most Americans speak English, but a lot of Americans prefer to speak Spanish in their home or another language. and so. Uh, we we're, we're very careful not to you know assign every Hernandez a Spanish you know label <laughs> um, <laughs> because that, that's going to really screw you up if you try to do that. But if you're a Hernandez and you grew up in and you you come from Mexico and you are you know uh, you're 50 years old, well then I have a pretty good shot at being able to communicate with you in Spanish. Uh, I'm not going to initiate necessarily in Spanish cause that might not be appropriate, but I have a pretty good sense that you might want to. And so we might make sure, make sure that options available, which we always make Spanish available in everyone in the United States. But, um, those are kind of examples of things we might be to look to to kind of give us some guidance.
1: I love the example there of thinking about the, what's your voter preference on the basis of how you ended up, uh, uh, uh voting. That's, now, earlier in, in leading into that, you had talked about, well, you know, how for the city or how for Florida or how particular, some particular location, you're mentioning uh, uh, Oklahoma, for example, you know, how do we make sure that we're being representative of that? And I know that, no, you know, no matter how well-crafted your tool, your questions are, and we want to get into that, you know, it's meaningless if you don't have these usable data points to go along with it. And so in statistics, what we end up doing, right? is we're trying to get some kind of representative sample so that we can say with some kind of margin error, uh, you know, what's the actual population in this particular location like on that particular variable? Now, sometimes that seems easy enough, but it can be really, really hard, especially when you're talking about elections or you're talking about a small area. You know, so historically, for example, I think of the the 1836, the then famous Literary Digest poll that found that FDR right. was going to lose to uh, Alf and why? Well, because they had an unrepresentative sample. The people who who uh, purchased the digest were far richer during the Great Depression than anybody else. Or you know, the 1948 Gallup poll where they stopped polling, among other issues, a couple of weeks before the campaign. Uh, and miss out on 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 Truman. So, for you, how how does your research group? How do you make sure that you're getting the right kinds of samples for sometimes pretty small or geographically defined areas?
0: So that's a it's a, a constant challenge, and I say challenge because it's not a problem. It's it's a fun you know, challenge for us to say, okay, what's our universe? Where are we looking at and how do we accomplish the goal? And it, you know, again, in the case of voters, it's fairly easy because we have this finite universe of participants. Like we know it's not mm-hmm. going to grow, other than in some states you do have like, you know, day of registration, things like that, which you know really don't tend to impact the outcome. They're not big, big numbers. So that's a pretty easy place to start. And yeah, if it is a, a finite universe, let's say, you know, a city uh, and mm-hmm. you've got, you know, 80,000, you know, potential voters in that city, uh, then it's actually not as hard as you might think because, uh, it's 2022. I get to call you on your landline if you still have one. And some people do, I get to call you on your mobile phone. Most people have those. Um, and by the way, I get to call you at nine thirty in the morning on a Saturday. I get to call you at you know, five o'clock in, in the evening when you're driving home, I get to call you while you're walking your dog. So really is a big expanded opportunity in recent years of, of being able to communicate with people. I also get to email you and text you. Uh, and we can talk about some legality of that if you want. But um, so I can onboard you in your onboard experience by email or text. Uh, and there's other cool opportunities I have for you. So um, depending, again, on, on what we're trying to accomplish, I can send you a piece of mail which is not as expensive as you might think, uh, and I can ask you to complete the survey that way. Uh, I can put a QR code on it to make it super easy for you to get on board if that's the way you want to do it. And I can even target you on social media, and, and the, the political scientist in you might you know, gasp at that idea. And let me explain what I'm saying. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not just randomly buying ads. I can actually target you specifically, individual voters or individual consumers um, on social media. Now, Facebook, Google, Twitter, they don't let me send you a direct message necessarily, but I can upload, it's called a custom audience, I can upload the voter file or consumer file, whatever it is, to social, to any of those tech companies. Uh, They're very happy to, I'm sure, take any of the data we sent them. And then target specifically (laughs) individuals uh, to, to complete surveys and the ads only go to them. And so, uh, there's really a lot of opportunity to reach out to people and have it be statistically valid and accurate. Now there, I will take one step back and, and for any, you know, uh, purists, research purists out there, there is only one, uh, probability sample that is accepted by the American Association of Public Opinion Research, and that is telephone random digit dialing. And so every other technique we use and everything we've invented and created and started using in the last you know, couple dozen years is a proxy for probability sampling, and that's the, the most technical I'll get. But the bottom line is we're, we, are, we are trying our best to construct a, a sample that is accurate. Now, what we can do on the back end and what we do do is make sure that we have the right amount of, of men and women, uh, the right number of people in uh, each, each category, the right number of people to match, whether it's census or, or, or voter file of, of people in, in different ethnic categories. And so that's our job on the back end for you, for, to, be, for you to be able to trust the data. Uh every pollster's job is to make sure on the back end you're you're meeting you're matching that demographic to make sure your data is accurate and sometimes that's a question. Okay.
1: Oh, yeah. And I, I'll say, you know, I'm I'm not the purist on that front. As a matter of fact, when I came into the discipline, I was re- my focus was I was curious about how this brand new thing that I thought researchers were overlooking, i.e. social media, specifically Twitter, was right. missing out on the way that politicians were actually communicating. So my, or my dissertation was actually called and then book was the social media presidency. So, no, you don't have to buy me into that one. I'm already <laughs> uh, I'm already on board. Um, now, there was two elements there. One, you were talking about making sure that the sample is representative, you know, on the kind of the back end and the front. And I want to get to that because there's a lot to unpackage there. But something else you talked about, you were looking the, the multimodal way that you're attempting to, to mimic the random dial uh, uh, phone method and the questions you're going to have. Now, one of the things I've always kind of curious on in my front is, well, and, and maybe we're, we're going to get pretty funky now here. It's all good. Uh, is, well, in in the social science literature, political science specifically, we talk about this thing, framing effects, right? The idea that the way that information is presented can oftentimes influence the decision-making process itself. In other words, the content right. of how that information is presented is more important than the actual content. So for polling, that can just wreak absolute havoc. And it's something I work on with students all the time. So I'm curious, how do you guys you know, for example, make sure that your respondents are answering the qu- content question you're trying to get at, especially when you're doing it multimodally, right? So in one case, you're having somebody uh, talk to them on the phone versus in another case, they're going to be doing it in the mail versus another case where you're going to be doing it online. How do you hold that kind of those framing effects constant or does that not even come into it? I was, I was curious about that.
0: Sure, for sure, uh, of course, that's a consideration for us. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, like most of the time, we're dealing with at some level emotion. Uh, so I, I'm not, you know, trying to conduct some, you know, uh, some study on uh, I don't know some something that that isn't emotional, right? We're talking about public policy and politics, and and how do you feel about how you are treated, uh, kind of a thing. So. Uh, I have a, a, a I guess a, a lower level of concern. Over, over influencing the outcome because I really do want to get to the visceral, emotional uh, you know concern of what people have to say. Um, but the, the bottom line is, yeah, of course, we're, we're not looking to influence people with our questions. We're not looking to educate anyone with our research. I mean, that's a big thing that comes up. Clients are always like, oh, well, we're going to teach them about, it. no, 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 we're not going to teach the 300 people that we're surveying or the 3,000 people we're surveying anything. We're just going to learn what they think. Um, but yeah, a lot of the time we are kind of—I um, I hesitate to use the word because people confuse it with, with another thing, with push. But we, we're oftentimes trying to push people in a direction and see if they push back. You know, see what resistance we get, uh, and and try to essentially put them into a box. Uh, you know, I'm trying to put you into that box. And and I and or or some box, and I want you to kind of organize yourself into which box that you know you you fit into. Um, So that's in the especially in the world of politics, that's kind of oftentimes what we're trying to do is kind of like identify what box you fall into and kind of see if, if those pushes kind of push you towards where where we think they're gonna push you. Um, but I, I will say the, the, uh, the, the goal is obviously always accuracy. And one of the cool things that does come up with the multi-mode scenario is um, there are moments, it's rare, but there are moments where people talking to us on the phone have a far different, and by far I mean 5 or 10% different, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. response to the people who are responding in an online, you know, format without an a, a interviewer involved. And all of a sudden we start, we, we have this like, you know, um, you know, uh-oh slash, uh, uh, oh, that's exciting <laughs> kind of moment. Because we, we first our first reaction is, okay, wait a second, there's a problem here. You know, why are we seeing differences? But then it becomes the opportunity. Oftentimes when, when that happens, it's uh a willingness to be more negative or maybe a little more honest in the online forum. And we we you know, the kind of the, the classic, you know, modern day <clears throat> um you know, example of this is the 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 supposed shy Trump voter who you know wasn't really yeah. showing up uh, in in that election because uh, in his first election because um, b- because they weren't uh, they weren't willing to say it because they were embarrassed um, and so or or for whatever other reason so. Um, That is something that we sometimes see. And that's the beauty of having the multi-mode scenario is you get to see those differences if they occur and start to discover, okay, what was that about? What's the difference in demographic? Oh, maybe they're a little bit older when they respond to us online, you know, and, and see where it is they fall and see if we can figure out why.
1: I'm so glad you brought up the shy Trump voter thesis. Because one of the things I wanted to ask was you were talking in part a minute ago as well about, you know, sometimes on the back end, effectively, you got to make sure that your sample is representative, say, across gender, other ways based on, you know, even that you did it randomly, but you may not have gotten a random sample to come back. And and as a matter of fact, that shy Trump and some of the problems that uh, national polls at least had was such a big deal that you know even Pew studied this. They took a look uh, at the polls that were underpredicting the level of support for Donald Trump in twenty sixteen and twenty twenty, uh, and and have tried to kind of like piece through that. And on the one hand, I think this probably makes things for your company harder in one sense because people are like, ah, oh, well you know polling guys, that's just a bunch of it's not math. <laughs> that's just all you know, hooey gooey. But on the other hand, I'd like like you to kind of talk into, you were kind of mentioning there, one of the possibilities is you might get at it when you have a different kinds of multimodal polling. So talking a little bit about, on the one hand, I guess I got two questions, one is, yeah. How do you convince individuals, hey, what I'm doing isn't magic. This is math, <laughs> right? You know, here's what we're doing. Right. And on the other, you know, how do you ensure that you don't make those kinds of 2016, 2020 uh, mistakes?
0: So on the first side, I, I, I wish I had kind of the magic wand to, to say, hey, um, you know, I'm good at what I do. Uh, and, and, you know, um, yeah. uh, we are generally good at what we do as bolsters in general in our research industry. Um, but the way I typically do it is, is first of all, we say, and this is not, it, it, you know, uh, this is not self-promotion, but you know, we have 100% accuracy rating on predicting outcomes. So, so that's like a great starting point for us. And I think most researchers um, have like a very high, outcome prediction uh, uh, you, you know uh, rate so that's a good starting place but also by example you know to someone who says because this happens a decent amount of the time you know will like I said in any political subdivision like a, a city or a county uh, in some states even some small states, you know 400 300 400 completed surveys is pretty um, pretty good it works. Uh, and And you know obviously, in some states you'll have more like seven or eight hundred or a thousand or something like that. But so we can point to that and say, look, the, the in in almost any other scenario in a city of your size uh, or a state of your size, you know having a thousand completed surveys is going to give you an accurate uh, assessment. Um, so we use examples, I guess if, is the the biggest way of doing it. Um, and then uh, and then what would remind me of the second part of the question?
1: So the second one was how do you prevent having, in other words, how do you get to that hundred percent success rate to uh, not, for example, underreport, you know, uh, uh, Trump supporters for just one particular example. Right.
0: right. So uh, obviously the the, the multi mode scenario is really important for that. So we're capturing people from or all quarters uh, and. And that's really a, a, a critical component, you know, going back to your examples you had of the, 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 the magazine, the Digest, you know, in, in, the, yep, literary digest, uh, yep. in the literary digest example. So <clears throat> you can never look at one of our pieces of research uh, and say, oh, it's, you know, you missed some part of the population. One thing that you do see today, and I'm very high on my industry and, and the people that uh, work in it, the professionals that work in it, um, but one thing you do see is um, uh, some of these kind of upstart groups uh, that, that really want to take a tech approach to research. And they use panel respondents uh, as their uh, as their foundation for research. And uh, on a national level and, and even on a statewide level, oftentimes that can really work really well. Uh, it's a cheap way of doing research and it's a um, uh, and, and it 's a, a pretty fast way of doing research they 're basically people who have signed up and said raised their hands and said, "I will take a survey um, if you pay me you know a, a few pennies or whatever it is to do it and those are really useful. They are not so accurate when it comes to let 's say a more specific political subdivision, like a county or a region, um, and they don 't afford you The same luxury that, uh, let's say, the voter file does or a consumer file, because it's just what information they put into the back end of a survey platform that they've agreed to sign up for, to to complete surveys for. And so that is a a kind of a, you know, asterisk mark concern that I have when you see a survey that's exclusively done by a panel, not, when it comes to like, predicting a specific outcome, not, you know, do you, you know, support firefighters or not, you, you know, and the number is 89%. Yes, okay, that's a good data, Like, right? Don't worry about that. It's a strong number. Uh, and, and, and even if it's if out, even if it's, uh, you know, the margin of error, you know, you're fine, you know, firefighters doing great. Um, <clears throat> but if, uh, if you're trying to do that on a political subdivision basis and use panel, it's not necessarily going to work. Uh, but just to foundationally, one of the things that we do, uh, and some other researchers do this, is we do what we call a, we use a, sati- a, 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 um, a stratified random sample. So we know ahead of time how many people in each of those gender and, and age and, and geography categories, you know, based on county or whatever it is in the state that we want to get, and we fight, you know, tooth and nail to get actual real respondents. To fulfill those proportions, those quotas, so to speak, to make sure that we have uh, the 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 you know forty seven percent you know male and fifty three percent female or, or well there's some other folks that classify classify themselves separately so you know about that uh, that we get the right number of people in all those categories and um, and make sure that we're, we're we're dead on in the back end. Um, what some researchers do is they. Uh, they take a uh, uh, the results that come back, and let's say they only had uh, 16, uh, 18 to 25 year olds, and they really needed 42 of them to to fulfill their quota. They will use something called uh, weighting, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, not everybody necessarily is, and they will just essentially turn the dial up and say, "Oh, those 16, let's pretend it was you know 45 or whatever it was, and let's turn the dial up on those answers, and we'll Will, will exacerbate their responses to to represent the larger group that we should have gotten.
1: That it's is almost a, like counting a, them a little bit more in a sense, is yes. it, mathematically. <laughs> it, it,
0: yeah. That's a fantastic way of putting it. And that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's not a, a a bad practice. In fact, for most researchers, is the practice they tend to use. We uh, tend to never use that. We just really, really like to get actual real people responding to our surveys in the right numbers. So if we need to, you know, keep calling and emailing and texting and whatever until we get that, you know, professor who makes $120,000 a year and, and does a podcast and, and uh, you, you know, has, has some kids and, and, and drives the Ford Bronco, then, you know, we've got to keep doing it until we get it. Um, and, and so uh, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a thing. So it was a lot of work, but we get no. it done.
1: So now on that topic, uh one of the things that I think can be uh both worth exploring and it can be unique for people who are kind of encountering this for the first time is to say you said look, on the variables that matter, like the statistics I should say, the statistics that matter, how do you decide what are the relevant demographics that you need to have based on the question you're having, right? So obviously I think a lot of us will go okay, so men and women Uh, and different kinds of gender types or, you know, income, but they don't all always matter. So what are the ones that you guys are going to look at afterwards and say, or is that a rotating demographic based on the question? So how do you decide what are the target demographics that you need for your sample?
0: Yeah. So, I I mean, foundationally, age, gender, if it's political party um, and and geography are are kind of the the starting points. But Some places, type of housing is a thing. So, you know, in some places you want to make sure you have the right number of renters in the mix. Because you've got renters who make a million dollars, but they may, you know, someone might think of the renter differently or the renter might think of themselves differently, um, regardless of income. And so we want to make sure we have the right number of renters. Or, uh, you know, we do, like I said, work for government. So we do work among, let's say, mobile home parks. Uh, you know, people live in mobile homes. Uh, and so, you know, we've got to make sure we understand whether they're a, a renter or an owner of that mobile home. Um, in, uh, in, in other places, it could be income. In other places, it could be education. Uh, but really, it's, it's uh, most of the time, it's based, or, or it could be on, like, let's say uh, you, you were serving in a community that um, has a high level of, uh, of union membership or another great one that you know some people are surprised by there's some communities in this country where mega churches are like a real big factor in that community they are mm-hmm. they are like the center of life in that community and so whether you're a member in that mega church is a thing so those are are some of the factors that we we sometimes look at and really it's on a you know client by client basis is is okay what's relevant here and more foundational to that is if you're trying to wage a campaign, it doesn't matter if it's for politics or, or for outreach or for branding. If you're trying to wage a campaign, what is targetable? The truth is, uh it's probably not targetable. You're probably not gonna really know who attends the mega church, you know, from a popular standpoint and be able to send direct mail to them, let's say. Um, and and the same thing for union membership. Unless you get the all this from the, the, the union hall, you're you're not gonna know who publicly is Uh, uh, A member of the union. So it's hard to target them based upon that. And that's a big determining factor as to why why we might ask or might try to quota based upon those things. Um, But if it's a big enough factor, you're going to try to figure out a way uh, and have a sense of how to talk to that part of the community.
1: Well, let me – I got one last kind of broad tech question, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll, we're going to get into the, some more specifics on partisan identification uh, and partisan ID. Uh, I know this is a big one for my students and for many listeners. They kind of wonder, okay, on the nuts and bolts side, what kinds of work – or excuse me, tools – uh, does your research group use? Like, so for example, I grew up, uh, on Stata and SPSS. Um, I know today there's R. Are there specific kinds of tools that you guys use that you're you're willing to talk about there? I know that's something that's kind of curious to many.
0: Yeah. You just mentioned ones that are all, you know, at work at our shop. Um, R is, uh, is, a uh, becoming a bigger factor in, in, in our work. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, there's, uh, good old fashioned things like spreadsheets that that play uh, play into some of the the more simpler things that we do. Um, uh, I, there is no uh, there's no like uh, tech stack that everybody has to have uh, and and i'm I, I, this is like something that I love too asking other people you know what your tech stack is, what do you use? Um, but so th- those those major programs are definitely a part of the process. Uh, And then you know, when it comes to a lot of what we do as as researchers, is is beyond the analysis, is the visualization, uh, is presenting Mm the data. And and so you know, PowerPoint is your kind of standard process for doing that. Some researchers use you know something else, but PowerPoints pretty much the standard. But how do we get the the what do we what else do we use? Sometimes we are as a as a firm ourselves. We're kind of like agnostic when it comes to that. So sometimes we'll you know build a, a Tableau dashboard because that that's useful for uh, presenting the data and that's something the client is, is used to you seeing. Or or um, you know Google has a, a a platform that you can you know do dash build dashboards in also um, but uh, but yeah I think in a lot of ways you know SPSS or there's a company called Wincross that, that helps create mm. you know mm-hmm. uh, cross tabs. Uh, they've been around for a while. Um, the The good part about new tech in in research is that there's a lot of people trying it. the The bad part is um, it's it's very oriented towards when it comes to survey stuff. Very oriented towards regularized brand research so any of the tools if you look up a, a tool and there's dozens of them that have been created in the last you know several years they're generally created for someone who's trying to track their brand you know awareness or brand customer service over the course of you know literally for for, for, for you know on a monthly basis forever and they work really well for that sort of thing when you have you know uh you know 25 new public policy questions you know, every single day for a new client, those things kind of suck uh, because mm-hmm. you, 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 you can't really customize them and it's just not so helpful to have to kind of recreate the wheel every time. So we actually, to finally answer your question is, we've you know, created, invented in, in technology, uh, we've got an amazing you know, in-house tech uh, uh, guy who kind of really helped develop um, our ability to create our charting almost instantaneously. and again, it's not oh. some kind of wizardry. Uh, he just understood understood our problem and our challenge very well and used the 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 inner workings of uh, excel and, and Microsoft uh, uh, PowerPoint um, and some other tools that to, you know to bolt on to create something that worked really well for us. Um, and I think a lot of firms kind of, Did some have done something like that because the the tool just doesn't exist like over the counter kind of tool.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I'm going to I am talking with Adam Probalski and we're going to take just a brief moment and then we're going to come back and we're going to chat some more specifically about how we get into partisan ID and some other specific measures. Okay, so Adam, you know, we've, we've talked in big general terms about uh, what Probolsky research does and how you kind of get at these questions. And I'd like to drill down a little bit because you, you, you guys were really uh, nice to give me some of the data that you've worked on, some stuff from, from California, um, so that we can kind of have a little bit more of a specific conversation. And, and one of the elements you're dealing with there, and, and maybe one of the biggest concepts that political scientists, pollsters... Uh, politicians and their teams use is partisan identification. As a matter of fact, earlier in the first half of the conversation, you were even chatting a little bit about how, well, depending on where somebody registered, you might think about their partisan identification a little bit different. You know, so in the United States, the structure to parties, they're relatively weak. But we oftentimes think of pretty being pretty strong as we call party in the electorate or this partisan identification. That is an individual's attachment to one of the major political parties. And the reason why that's such a big deal is because it explains a lot of political behavior. You had begun to talk about this again earlier in the first half, and I'd kind of let it sit on the table for a minute. I would love you to talk through a little bit more about how you, you your research firm, has measured something like party AD, you know, this attachment, how, how you get at that. You'd started to talk about that a little bit, and let me talk about that a little bit more.
0: Sure. So uh, for in most of the country, we have party, uh, registration by party. And so when you register to vote, you tell them which party you want to be with. Um, in some of those states you have partisan primaries that you're know, closed, you can only vote in that uh, in that uh, party or party's primary. In other states you register by by party, but it's an open primary. So those things are all kind of factors. The truth is, you know, if you register to vote, you know, ten years ago and there's no requirement to kind of re-up your registration, you're Political philosophy or your party allegiance could have easily changed, so there's a lot of um, I guess flux in the data that's that's there, and so we like to ask questions uh, to apply over the course of the, the election. Let's say, um, you know, are you are you a strong Republican? Are you a strong Democrat? Uh, are you a conservative? Or are you a progressive? Uh, and and kind of tie that back to that original party registration or party identification. Um, obviously we're seeing, we've seen a, a, a surge in, in independent, uh, and in, they're called different things. And, uh, some places they're called independent, some places they're called declined states. state, some places they're called uh, no party preference. Um, there's a lot of people, uh, especially younger folk who are, are not, you know, enamored by, by party politics. They never got some sort of, uh, you, you know, they weren't recruited, so to speak, at any, any age. So, so they're just, they're just, you know, American citizens who you know, don't have a particular allegiance um, or they were they were disaffected. You know, they, they, they were a part of a party and then they realized that this is not for me and, and didn't jump ship to another one. I think one of the biggest things that, that, that we have to um, we have to recognize. And, and this is the best way of looking at uh, in because there's you know, a big chunk of independent voters in this country. Who are those people? Are, are they some sort of, you know, monolithic voting block? And the answer is no. The answer is independent voters look like, talk like, act like their neighbors. So if you are in a Republican, if you're in a red county, those independent voters are going to look and, and act a lot like their neighbors who are Republicans. And the same thing goes for the the in a in a blue county, your your independent neighbor who who doesn't subscribe to your party is going to probably be a lot like you when it comes to voting patterns. And so that's like a, a a good starting point to understanding you know how how we, you know the the to make up the fill in the gaps of of, of where the the rest of the country is. Um, yeah.
1: Okay. What you, so one of the things that always fascinates me about party ID is how once we've understood it and we've measured it correctly, how huge of a predictor it is a vote choice. Uh, as a matter of fact, in a recent work, I don't know if you're familiar with one, it's 2015, uh, Banu and Kane found that even in nonpartisan elections, in their case, they're taking a look at judicial elections that had to be nonpartisan. The biggest explanatory, explanatory variable for voting was the party cues, even though they couldn't actually have the R and D besides your name. So even in nonpartisan races, they're really heavily influenced by party ID in measurable ways. So when you did, I guess you don't do this quite as much, when, you know, you're working on like the campaign side of things, what are the variables, you know, party ID is a relatively stable variable. You know, you talked in your answer about how, you know, over the course of a decade it might change, but it doesn't generally change over the course of months. What are some of the more malleable variables that you guys look at it when it comes to politics?
0: Yeah, so for sure what you just explained is, is totally true. We, we, we are. Um you know, iconography is, is a great, you know, way to, to drive people's understanding of things. And, and, you know, party cues is just as good, um, you know, an, an image of, of a police officer or, uh, a, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, using on a piece of direct mail, you know, Ronald Reagan, right. It's not so hard to figure out what you're trying to communicate, even if you don't <laughs> you know, say you're a particular partisan, uh, so for sure, I think that's a, a big part of it. And, and you know, when you're campaigning and you're not necessarily, you know, talking about party, you, you do get to um, target voters based upon party without necessarily saying. It. And you can, you know, show different imagery and iconography and and uh, things to different people based upon your their what you expect their party to be. Um, but the. the We've seen in more recent years, specifically Trump as another you know anomalous factor that that you know you saw depending on the community um, you know anywhere between you know ten and twenty percent of of let's say Republicans who would not vote for Trump uh, for whatever reason, and so you all of a sudden had that 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 challenge in the mix, and maybe that's one of the the reasons why some of the the national pollsters got it wrong is. They kind of had this starting point, assuming that you know, it would be whole support among Republicans for the Republican nominee, when it just wasn't the case. He was just you – know, there was too many um, concerns they had over his behavior or whatever it was, and that they wouldn't support him. So all of a sudden, that construct that we, we come to hold so you know, closely that, that partisans vote for partisans um, started to break down. And and so you have to do some other work to discover what it is and find the proxy for for what it is that's going to drive them. And that's when questions like you know the strength of your your association to the party, but also uh, I'll tell you this: the, the the one of the greatest assets we have in a situation where you see some spillage, we'll call it, of people partisans who aren't going to necessarily support their that particular candidate, and, and that there's. Just as many examples on the Democratic side. There's people who can't stand Nancy Pelosi on the Democratic side and won't ever support her. So um, so w- what do we do there? Well, we like to start with qualitative work. And that's you know, maybe not the answer that, that, that pollsters love to hear because there's a little bit more work to it. But we like to start with a focus group. Um, or, or some other approximated way. We have other tools we use. We use video capture and things like that. But you, you, foundationally, when you find out there's a little bit of challenge, you do a focus group or two or ten, and you say, okay, what is it that's driving your consideration here? Can you tolerate? It? Can you are you comfortable with this nominee? If not, what is it that you know makes you put you off? And we start to identify those concerns that are out there. And once we identify those concerns then we can start to place that in other places and ask the questions. Oh, so they're concerned about uh, you know the way he treated women, Trump treated women, great. So now we poll and we ask that question, You know, do you have concern, in addition to who you're voting for, do you have concern over how he treats women or he's, he's been purported to treat women? And if you find that there's some significant number who say yes, uh, and but they still say they're voting for him, uh, you can start to ask multiple questions to see if you're going to move that voter or if they're going to possibly not be telling you the entirely you know, accurate picture of what they think they'll really do in the end. That's a, a, a really important part of it, is, is foundationally using research on a qualitative basis to understand what is, um, what's you know, emotionally driving people and, and see if we can discover a new way of looking things.
1: I want to start by just saying I'm going to play that clip for my students forever because the, the use of qualitative factors in order to figure out how you want to do quantitative research is so key in my opinion. So I was just sitting here shit, nodding my head. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly on that. But you're right. That is not that that is not a uniform position. But I agree with you deeply. Now, but you you started to get into something there that I think is really uh, 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 great, and it goes along with the data uh, that we had a chance to take a look at. So you graciously offered some data on California. I'll be honest. I was enthralled by uh, your findings. And one of the things that you're doing that's really important there, and you were talking about it in your answer, was you're slicing up partisans in different ways and to say, okay, well, wait a second. You say that you're a Republican, but obviously not all Republicans are identical in the same way that not all Democrats are identical. But how much is this going to actually influence something? So, for example, in the data you provided, you found that in the California Republican Party of those reporting choice, there's a split over whether or not Donald Trump should be viewed as the future of the Republican Party. 39.6% said he was. 40.5% 40.5% said he wasn't. And then you got a pretty big chunk, uh, 19.8% reporting that they're, that they're unsure. Right. But of course, will that actually change their, their voting behavior? So I'm, I was kind of curious about this. So you have this data here. And so, uh, A, I thought it was, I'm always maybe a little, I'll, you know, I, I can take a position. I'm, a, uh, I'm a, a, a guy who's worked for Republicans, a libertarian who's worked for Republicans for a long time, never liked Trump worked against Trump, hasn't really found a home there. So I was a little dismayed to see that, you know, still almost 40% of the party was saying, (laughs) yes, he's the future of the party. That's sad. I get that. But, you know, that's where it it is where it is. But I'm wondering more about those who said he wasn't, because do you really think they wouldn't vote for him? How would you get at that? So this is a really, you know, this is a fascinating divide of a party, but how much do you think that impacts then vote choice?
0: So you get now to the, the the next hard question we've got to you know answer, and and that's through a series of other questions. So, um, right, I, I, he's not the future of the party to a, a big chunk of the electorate in this case in California, and and this models you know the numbers would be a little bit different, but but nationally the, there's big numbers of people who who believe we should move on to someone else or the the party should move on to someone else. Um, so the question then is yeah, okay, if it's Joe Biden, you know, are you voting for Joe Biden or are you going to vote for Trump, even if you don't think he's the future of the party? Or if it's, mm-hmm. you know, Trump versus DeSantis, you know, do you, do you vote for Trump or DeSantis? And so uh, we have to ask the next question and the next one and the next one in order to drill down to see not just are they going to, you know, choose another Republican over Trump, but if Trump is the nominee, are they going to choose, you know, Virtually any Democrat, or what kind of a Democrat would they be willing to break away from the party to vote for? And we use that with we do that by asking the the next several questions, like you know, if he if he was up against you know a DeSantis or or a uh, uh, you know a Pence or or or, or a, um, you know whoever it is, and and where would you vote? And then the same thing goes: Would you consider voting for a Democrat uh, if Trump was on the ballot again? And you kind of really. Like I said, in the box, we really push people into that box and identify, okay, we've got a whole 8% of this country of Republicans who ain't never voting for Trump again, or whatever the number is, maybe it's 12, maybe it's 20, but we really identify that, and then we can take them off the table and and, and understand that you've got a big challenge in your hands if you're Trump, let's say.
1: Yeah, when you say that, I can't help but think of 2016, and I think in some ways, the underestimation of how much, at least from the right, there was a, a complete derision for having another Clinton in office, no matter how much they liked or didn't like, you know, Donald Trump. And so you can you can start to see, like, well, I don't like Donald Trump, but oh, my goodness, I just I loathe Hillary Clinton. So I'm not going to vote for Hillary right. Clinton. Uh,
0: and and now, what's interesting we, is we had we had places like, like where I'm from in Orange County, California, that went just the other way. We loathe Trump so much that even though we're a Republican-leaning you know, county, we, we're going to hold our nose and vote for Hillary.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where you start getting the, into these kind of regional, and you, know, you were talking about that in the first half of the show as well, these kind of regional issues that you got to get into. Now, in addition to region, because we've talked about that, you know, we've a number of times talked about race, gender, and age, and how that's important for understanding how a sample will apply to the population. But of course, in, in the uh, data you provided, you've, done, you've split this up by uh, a race, for example. And this was another area where I was just enthralled. Um, there were two demographics that I zeroed in on, and that was Latinos and Hispanics, who even more so than their white counterparts in the Republican Party, saw Donald Trump as the future of the party. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, I mean, it was by and large the, the largest uh, a group to say that he was the future of the Republican Party, and then the other one that I had noticed was zero percent. I looked at that a couple of times. Zero percent <laughs> of African Americans in, in your sample agreed uh, with eighty-three point three percent of them saying we need to move on. Would you talk into a little bit about some of what you see as being these Republican Party splits by you know gender and race and age?
0: Well, first, let me say. In this particular poll, this was a California poll, and in this particular poll, it was one percent Black African American respondents. I mean, we have a small, okay. you know, relatively small uh, Black population in California, and and obviously even smaller uh, a, a percentage of them are Republicans. So, so that's a, a a good way of looking at it. It's just a tiny little group of people. I mean, it literally could have been, you know, six people giving those responses. Um, <laughs> Uh, California is a Latino state, though, um, yes. population-wise, um, but our, our, our voting profile in this particular poll was 28% of the, of the voters overall were, were Latino, and uh, you, you know, a far smaller percentage, of much less than half of them, consider themselves Republicans. So it's really, you know, like 10 or so percent of the, of the overall poll was, was, was among Latinos who, who were, you know, weighing in on the subject of, in this case, Trump. Um, but there is a, a you know, you, you can look at, at conservative Twitter a lot and see, um, you know, every time there's a stat that shows, uh, you know, any kind of minority group, uh supporting republicans or opposing by greg biden's approval level is like in the toilet right and and it's mm-hmm. even in the toilet with you know with latinos with african americans with you know virtually every group you know thinks he's doing a terrible job which you know i, I look this thing is working pretty well for me so i don't you know i don't feel that way but i understand that what's happening today isn't working for everybody so uh so i, I don't i don't <laughs> i don't get angry at them um but the point is that that there's um, there's excitement, I think, in in conservative world that, that there's you know consternation over where this president is uh, standing. But there is also a sense that um, the 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 perfect neat tidy MSNBC package that is you know every Latino votes Democratic and every black person you know supports a a, a Democratic cause. Uh, it doesn't really fit anymore if it ever did and so uh you, the things that you point out are are accurate right we there's not some you know voting block that that says you have to vote you know latino and you have to vote uh you know democratic and and so um you know there's traditional uh latino groups like or hispanic groups like cuban cubanos that that vote republican in florida um but, but it's, it's beyond that. You, you know, you can be a, uh, you, you know, you can identify as and, and you know, be a, a, a Latino, um, uh, first generation or, you know, fifth generation, whatever it might be. And whether you're affluent or not, uh, you can have a very different opinion, uh, especially when it comes to border issues. So I think it's, um, it's very helpful as a guide for us. Uh, to understand based on all those categories. But if you really wanna understand that population, I'll I'll give it to you again. Um, You gotta do a focus group and you gotta do some more discovery work to break down those communities. You know, even ask among those communities if we're going to do, let's say, a Latino poll nationally, you know, country of origin, uh, uh, generation, you know, they are uh, income level, education level. All those things are determining factors, not just because they have a Hispanic standing last name.
1: Yeah, and and you're absolutely right on that front of if it was ever true about these kind of uh, voting blocks, you know, when you take a look at the data from Texas, for example, you know, the border uh, uh, counties, for example, are far more likely when you're Latino to to, to uh, move towards Trump. And that's something we've talked about in the show that I've parsed in my own. And you know, so you got to be careful about that sometimes. You, there are these almost cultural assumptions about what you know, I'm going to put this in air quotes. You can't see it, but, you know, what the data yeah, is and sure. when really that's not what the data is, you know, right Um uh, but again, that kind of gets into the how do you help people? Now, on this polling, you also did – obviously, this is California. So you're taking a look at Democrats. I was really curious about that side of the, uh, of the uh, House as well. And it was – one of the things I thought was interesting was, okay, you were talking about, well, should the Democratic Party be more progressive or not? And I actually looked at your question and I thought it was kind of a cool way. You guys had picked Particularly, you mentioned AOC and Bernie Sanders as being the kind of more like them. So this is a great example of how did you end up picking those two to be progressive, to make a valid question? Because obviously, there's a lot of potential names that could go there, but you need something specific. You you want it to be not just progressive in a general sense because you're trying to have a valid question. So talk a little bit through that before we get into the specific response for what happened there.
0: Yeah, so... of course I any mean, I, I accept all you know criticisms and not that you were but I, I, I we specifically chose them because they have national profile uh and and they represent a uh i, I think a a direction for the the party uh for the democratic party and and um you know we could have used Elizabeth Warren we could have used others um but but i think the the point is to kind of um we were trying to get away from, you know, I actually thought about kind of doing like a, a Pelosi Schumer versus AOC, you know, um, uh, uh, AOC Sanders. And, and, but I wasn't sure other people would see that nuance. Like I see it right to, to me, you know, uh, Fox news that might not see it, but to me, you know, Pelosi is like, you know, the most moderate, you know, uh, person in the Congress. I mean, she, she's, she just wants things to like move along and, and she, she, she gets pushed into progressivism, you know? Um, But the truth is that that's not necessarily how other people see it. So we just wanted to do a bellwether on these two kind of like, you know, really polarizing progressive figures. And, and it it turns out that, uh, you know, the, the plurality of the party or just, just that 50% say they, they, they kind of want that to be the direction of the party. Now, if we named other names, it might have been different. If we described it differently, it might have been different. But uh, my point was to kind of really illustrate uh, whether they are the future or not. And uh, and yeah, you know, a majority, a very small majority, almost say you know they are.
1: Well, and on that front, one of the other things I had noticed was so when you go back to the Republican side and you take a look at if Donald Trump's the future of the party, it was it was unique to me to see that I didn't notice a particular obvious uh, age shift. In other words, I couldn't look at it and go, "Okay, the older you get, you're definitively being more uh, Trumpian and the younger you get, the less Trump you are. As a matter of fact, it kind of seemed to be in that middle age range where he had the most support. But in the case for for Democrats and progressivism on your poll – there did seem to be a bit of that where the 18 to 29 crowd was far and away the most progressive responding at 70 percent. At so when you kind of break it down by age, what are those kinds of things telling you? I mean, do you see that as being the future of the Democratic Party because of their age or as they age, do you think they will change and or shift? Uh,
0: so, I mean, it, it does – Portend uh, uh, the future of the future uh, being uh, <laughs> being more progressive, um, and and so, but also it, it's you know we can talk all day about media consumption and, and news, in, news source information, uh, and so younger people uh, their news source and and you know and Democrats anyway are going to lionize. Uh, that progressive part of the party, uh, and so that's really where their news is from. And and also, it's it's a if you're a a, a you know young Democratic voter today, uh, you probably care deeply about things like debt student loan forgiveness uh, and and uh, abortion rights. Uh, and and you see you know that progressive wing of the party being you know uh, uh, you know the most activist on things like that. And, and also, you know, equity. And so, um, you know, it, it's only natural that younger people are gonna gravitate towards that. Now, pr- predictively looking forward 10, 20, 30 years, are, are, are those, you know, younger people gonna keep their, their hyper-progressive, you know, outlook on politics? I, I don't know, I, I, I'm i not the, uh, the, the crystal ball uh, of 30 years from now, but, uh, but, but I, I, I do think it, it's, it's um, you know, there are some people that are really watching that closely to try to figure out if that's going to change or if, if there's going to be, you know, a further divide in our politics.
1: You know, I had an originally intended on asking this, but this is, I think, always a relevant question. And I loved your answer there. Look, look, you're not an oracle who can who can predict three decades in the future, but at the same time, you know, when you the reason you do these kinds of quantitative analysis is to say something about at least the near future. So when when you're looking and having this kinds of data, what's its shelf life?
0: Well, I'll tell you what the FEC says. Uh, I think the I think the Federal Election Commission says polling has value for a year, and someone you know some some lawyer can weigh in and tell me differently. But um, and and the reason for that is right if you're showing political if you're showing polling to a a candidate, then it's it's kind of technically an in-kind contribution, Uh, and so uh, it it has about a year's worth of value according to them. But you know, it depends on a, on, a, on a broad scale like this, a statewide basis, a national basis. Uh, Data is good for six months, a year or sometimes more, but when it's not. So for instance, we're in a peacetime and everything's great and, you know, nothing's changed. And yeah, I support our military and our current level of military spending. All of a sudden, you know, Russia starts attacking, you know, Eastern Europe and, and the world changes and I'm going to be supportive of, Spending a lot more. So I I think, you know, barring some dramatic shift, and we're probably not going to see that politically over the course of the next, you know, year or so, these numbers are great for a a year and a half. But when things, you know, the, the 2024 election starts heating up and we've got real fights on our hands, all of a sudden people start, you know, putting a finer point on how they see the world.
1: Yeah, those systematic uh, structural changes to the universe can be terrible. Especially as a researcher, I can't tell you how many people I know. You know, you're doing research and then 9-11 happens and you go, oh, now my research is crap. Uh, Right. What do I I do with that? COVID
0: COVID was a great example of that. I mean, it it just kind of, the bottom, the the floor drops out. And that's why, you know, you got to be prepared to to track and, and look at numbers again and again.
1: So let me kind of bring this around because I know that we're coming to the end of our time together. Uh, And and this, you know, on your website, you list all the things that you do for government, corporate, and election clients. And one of your consistent messages that I was – that piqued my interest was you talk about that ability to provide messaging. Because, again, as a political communication guy, I'm very curious about messaging. And so as a researcher, what came to my mind was this, was, okay, whether you're working for any of these three – how do you make the move from, okay, I've done all the data side, right? I've done my qualitative work to understand what kind of questions I need to ask. I've asked my questions. I've asked them well. I think, you know, I've got a great sample. It's saying something about the population that I wanted to say it about. How do we move from that to, okay, here's what you do with it? Because my guess is, is, you can't just dump this data on somebody's door and be like, okay, by the way, here's all the data. Good luck. And no one's ever going to hire you again. So how do you make that move to the messenger? and say, okay, well, here's what people think now, here are our suggestions for what you do. What does that look like? I, I'm always curious about that last piece of the move as well.
0: Sure. And I think there might be some examples uh, on our website, but there's a million out there that we can pull from. So we ask you know, the question, who you're voting for, or do you support or oppose you know, building uh, a thousand homes on that vacant lot. And, and you have the, 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 the fervent, you know, yes, no support opposed. Uh, so the next series of questions is, you know, breaking down what we call the features and benefits. Uh, you know, the, the this candidate uh, has, you know, a dozen years of experience in Congress. Does that make you more or less likely to want to vote for them for governor? Uh, and this candidate had a DUI when they were 22 years old. Uh, does that make you more or less likely to vote for them? That's not a mean question. You know, it's a fact. It's reality, and you want to understand the impact of it. And so, when you go through those series of questions, uh, whatever you know, whatever they are, the the what we call features and benefits, we start to understand what moves people from one place to the other. Which of those voters are moved from one place to the other based upon that? And and we we hopefully identify your top, you know, two or three or five messages uh, that really, really resonate. Right. This candidate, uh, uh, you know, obtained the rank of captain in in the army and and, uh, had three tours of duty in, in Afghanistan. And all of a sudden you start to build the narrative of, uh, you know, when you see that bio of, the, of the, the guy running for Congress or the woman running for mayor, um, and you wonder, like, why did they choose to put, uh, you know, her, uh, uh, you know, her, her award from, you know, the, 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 the uh, Mothers Against Drug Driving in her bio? Well, it's because, it, I mean, I don't want to be cynical about it, <laughs> um, but if they had research on it, it's because of the research. And, and yeah. uh, obviously because she's passionate about it and it's important to her, but when, when, you, when, you, when you have a campaign of, of resources, they're going to pull all those different factors and backgrounds and things, and most things are going to be purposeful. What they put online, what she says in her speech, how she presents herself on TV.
1: Adam, thank you so much for being here and answering. I know just a plethora of questions from me on what you do every day. I appreciate it.
0: Sure, happy to. Glad to uh, glad to be part of it. Uh, bring me back anytime.
1: Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. We would love to do that. I've been talking with Adam Probolski. He is uh, works with the Probolski uh, Research, founded in 1992, and works together, as we were talking about beforehand, with your very accomplished wife, yes?
0: Correct, correct. Our CEO, uh, who... Uh, is also, who is our CEO of our company and owns our company. Uh, We are a Latina and woman-owned firm, so yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, maybe next time we can get you guys both on the show, you know, at some point. That would be a lot of fun. But again, I've been talking with Adam Probolski with his research group. Thank you so much, Adam, again. Listeners, thank you guys so much uh, for listening to this episode of The Politics Guys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Tony Cooley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you'll join us next time.